live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back from your summer break. Welcome back to all the listeners. It didn't sound like you had much of a break, Rabbi Hirsch, because the three times that I called you throughout the summer holidays, each time you picked up from a different country, you picked up once from a boat. Right. You had a very eventful summer. It was more of a change of scenery, I guess, than the holiday, but it was definitely abroad. I managed six countries in two weeks, guiding on two riverboat cruisers, one on the Danube, one on the Rhine for a company called Kosher Rica. So plenty of history. You managed to combine business and pleasure. Sort of, yes. And this week is very exciting. You have another article in the Emmy magazine. The last one was, was fantastic. And this one is on the Kniza. And it's got lots of stuff which was not mentioned in our four-part podcast on the Geniza. So everyone at your grocery this week, pick up a copy of the Emmy. No excuse, exactly. Okay, so we are back and ready to start with a brand new series. What is tonight's topic? The French Revolution. It's a three-part series with a twist in the tail at the end. So everybody knows that in 1789 there was a revolution, as a result of which the French proclaimed liberty, fraternity and equality, and they emancipated the Jews, in fact the first country in Europe to do so, except emancipated which Jews. There weren't any Jews in France. At least there shouldn't have been because they'd been kicked out in 1394. So who exactly were they talking to? And then somehow from this revolution, this bloke Napoleon arrives on the scene and he becomes emperor, which is the opposite of a people's revolution. They're back to a king. How did that happen? Are you going to discuss as well whether he was good for the Jews or not? Oh, very much. Yes. But to start to answer all of these questions, we need to take a step back and start briefly with 1394, when the French king Charles VI declared that the Jews had committed so many sins against the Christians that henceforth no Jew will be allowed to live in the kingdom of France ever again. Yet, somehow, prior to the revolution of 1789, there were four centres with a Jewish presence in France and 35,000 Jews. The largest area was the Ashkenazi Jews in the northeast, Alsace, the city of Metz, and Lorraine. There were 5,000 Svaradi Jews in southwestern France, in Bordeaux, and several small towns in the area. There were obviously in the four Jewish communities of the papal lands around Avignon, a couple of thousand, which we dealt with in our podcasts on Provence. And lastly, by the mid-1700s, small groups lived in small numbers in Marseille, Montpellier, in Paris. So how does that happen? Between the 1500s and 1700s, life was very different for Svardim and Ashkenazim in France. In fact, it could not have been more pronounced 
which is why their emancipation, in fact, came at different times in different years. And the relationship between these communities were, well, hardly positive. And it would only change when Napoleon established the central Jewish consistoire in 1808. So let's start with the South. Some Jews in France managed to escape the expulsion decree because, for instance, Bordeaux was under English rule, so not subject to the edict. And even when the city returned to French rule in uh, 1454, some Jews were permitted to remain as long as they weren't English. And then following the expulsion from Spain in 1492, so refugees from there and eventually from Portugal settle in the Bordeaux region in southern France. And in 1550, the King of France allowed them to live within that area, but they were tolerated only as new Christians, so, you know, Muranos. And in fact, being so far and so isolated, many of them, unfortunately, ended up going over to Christianity fully. And in fact, in one small town in Saint-Jean-de-Luz, a Murano woman was killed in 1622 as a result of the Inquisition on an auto-de-fe. Whereas elsewhere in France, the rest of France, Jews were simply barred, even as Murano Jews. They were persecuted in, in Rouen, in Nantes, they were driven out of Bayonne. So you're saying that no Jews existed in most of France, even as new Christians? Yes. But official letters of residence in Bordeaux were renewed throughout the 17th century. Then, as late, in fact, as 1723, official correspondence mentions them as Jews and, in fact, allowed them to live openly as Jews. The number of Jews in the city at the time was probably only about uh, 150 families. But observance was limited. In 1734, for instance, the shuls of Bordeaux were closed. Jews were not allowed to employ Christians in the house, and they weren't allowed to have a rabbi, and they had to keep their businesses open on Saturdays. Um, medicine remains closed to the Jews, and even though you find many Sephardic names amongst the doctors of Bordeaux, these were almost all Muranos or even uh, actual Christians, and Jews engaged in medicine were fined until 1789. And despite the fact that a Jew had financed the construction of the Bordeaux theatre, Jews were refused admittance. What type of community connection existed amongst the Murano Jews, if any? In communal terms, so there is a core of wealthy Muranos who create the Nation, which was a communal charitable fund created by a self-governing body, which, which actually carried very strong traces of a crypto-Jewish origin. What do you mean? What I mean is that the association was not very public and the purpose of the association was charitable. So it was not set up in any way to uh, inject or impact on Judaism. Mm -hmm. And 
That means that Bordeaux had Jews who, who knew they were Jews and often married other Jews, but there's no Judaism. There's no communal prayer. There's not even a Jewish burial or a section in the, in the cemetery. Now, in the early period, these wealthy members were very charitable. They even paid the taxes of the, the poorer Muranos, but that changes because when there is a danger of there being too many, the numbers becoming too great, there is a fear of competition and an even greater fear of endangering the existence of the, the existing Murano Jews, of rocking the boat. And that made them act in very self-interested ways. The nation becomes a closed circle to be used for their own social and economic interests. Now, one outcome was that less affluent Svardim were seen as superfluous and, and needed to be moved on. Sometimes this was accomplished by sending them abroad. In, in 1719, an entire family from Portugal was given passports for London on condition that they do not return to France. And any poor Ashkenazim were allowed to remain in the city no more than 24 hours. This is by sort of Jewish decree, so to speak. And the leaders took even more drastic steps and they obtained from the authorities the rights of expulsion of large numbers of Jews. Even as late as 1734, a decree was issued ordering Jews, including Ashkenazim and Italians, to leave Bordeaux. Did matters not change at all after 1723? Okay, so as we mentioned a little bit earlier, in 1723, the Jews of Spanish and, and Portuguese descent were officially recognized as Jews. And in fact, Bordeaux's best in starts to function but it is emerging, as mentioned, from crypto-Judaism. So the questions addressed to the Bezdin are ones which are of ritual matters, marriage, divorce, the certification of Shechtim. But because of the considerable integration of Jews into public life there, and the fact that for so long Jews who had practiced any form of Judaism had done so very much in private, the Sephardic Kehillah did not use their own Bezdin for any business matters. Members resolved their issues in the French non-Jewish courts. And this means that when in 1738 rabbis were appointed, such as uh, Rav Yaakov Chaim Atias, he was not involved in the determination of public policy. Rabbis were, you know, teachers and they officiate in the synagogue and there were very strict limitations on their authority. So all in all, those Jews took a low profile. Religion was very unobtrusive, which of course changes after the uh, 1789 revolution. So it sounds like a very different life at that time in France for Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Can you describe what Ashkenazi life was like, how different it was? Very different. Firstly, as we will see, there were organized Jewish communities. Ironically, the same King Henry, who was responsible for driving Sephardi Jews out of Bayonne gave privileges to the Jews of Metz, which created stark differences in terms of the ability to observe halacha. And in brief, the history of the Jews of Alsace is as follows. Like other regions within the French Empire, between the 15th and definitely by the 16th centuries, they expelled all their Jews. 
but the area, the region, went backwards and forwards between Germany, or I guess the, the Holy Roman Empire, and France until 1639, when it becomes French. And within this area, there are city-states like Strasbourg, which had their own independence and absolutely refused residence to any Jews. So it wasn't a piece of cake living there either. And that meant that the Jews who remained in Alsace had to settle outside major urban centres, in villages. And the change is not just geographic. Demographically, the centralised Jewish communities are now scattered. It's recorded that there are between one and 11 families residing in any shtetl. So most of them did not have enough residence for a minion. And there are no yeshivas in Alsace during the 1600s. And you have truvas that deal with some of the halachic issues facing these Jews in these tiny communities, such as traveling on Shabbos in order to daven with a minion, or how to daven when you don't have a minion. And, for instance, Rav Chaim ben Mitzala, the Maral's brother, instructed his congregants to, you know, sort of respect the Jews who traveled in from the countryside on Shabbos. But this was an ongoing issue. Well, so there's a major difference. I mean, you have the, the Ashkenazim. They were struggling much more financially, persecuted. They had isolation. Yes. And in fact, there is an amazing insight provided through the memoirs of Asher ben Eliezer Halevi from Reichshofen, which is a small town in Alsace, he composed his memoirs in the early 17th century. He's an otherwise sort of unknown individual who sheds light on daily life in the, in the region. He was born in Bavaria in 1598, and he moves with his family to a place called Binzingen, which is near Metz. He is struggling financially, so he serves as a malamid for various families in return for which he receives uh, room and board. And then ultimately he trains in Shechita, in Brismila. He becomes as well a sefer, a chazan, um, and like other Jews from Alsace, he engaged in selling wine, money lending, because if you wanted to make ends meet, you needed to be open, creative. And then there is his extensive travel. His father taught him initially, uh, but at the age of 11, he traveled to Metz. At 14, he travels to Prague to learn. He is in Frankfurt when he is 19 and finally rounds off his Torah studies back in Metz. And after his marriage, he still continues to travel around Alsace because he's now a sort of a religious functionary, but he doesn't go east anymore. He remains far closer to home. And he records narratives such as the fact that in 1630, the communities of Alsace learned that there would be no Esregim for Sukkot, because there were very few in all of Ashkenazos, you know, including Germany. And he writes that two Jews called Hirtz and Michel arrived with two very small Esregim. And he writes there, on the eve of Sukkot, Erev Sukkot, I didn't give my eyes rest until I found a way to permit reciting a brocha on this, even when the Esregim were incomplete, as it was not possible for us to use another one. 
and we shared it in Pfaffenhofen, in Gursdorf, in Surburg, in Reichshofen. It was, in fact, one esrug for six villagers. So he's clearly very committed. He is also quite brave. During the siege of Hagenau on Friday, Rushchedesh Av of 1633, so Eliezer Halevi sent for him to give a bris to his son. And Usher writes, even though my father-in-law and everyone said I was not obligated to go, I rode and nine riders appeared and demanded my money. He also carried out a bris in Ingviller during this time of war. And en route, he and his companions were attacked. And he reports, they took all that we had and also the horses and we were in grave trouble. So quite a brave individual. But the region suffered from these attacks periodically. This is in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. And he writes on Erevium Kippur, the Swedish army was there with legions of infantry, and I couldn't leave my house on Yom Kippur to pray with a minion, nor on sukkahs could we sit in a sukkah. In his memoirs in general, he also includes details about rabbinic positions, rabbinic figures in the general Ashkenazi world. He lists also some of the major Svarim printed. He talks about the Kliokor and the Shlo. And the reason he does so is because in common with other Jews in these regions, the Jews of Alsace identified themselves as members of a much larger Ashkenazi macro kehillah. They had in the first instance, what they called an Ashkenazi Landjudenschaft, which was the entire region off the Rhine, on both sides of the Rhine, was considered as being one area. And it was, in fact, all of it was under the halachic jurisdiction of the community of Frankfurt. And the Avbesden of Furth, who had been in Nidernai, in Alsace, as a rov, he says, yeah, the Bnei Rhinus, the residents of the Rhinelands, are one kahila. And beyond that, the entire area from Metz in the west to Prague in the east is a unified entity for the traditions of Western Ashkenaz. Western as opposed to Ashkenaz in Poland, Lithuania. Yes, that's Eastern Ashkenaz, which is different and is reflected in the in the different types of Yiddish spoken in these two regions. And perhaps to conclude, there is a fascinating vignette of Western Ashkenazi Europe that comes to us through Reb Shmuel Heller, who is the son of Reb Yontov Lippmann Heller, the Tosis Yontov from Prague. And he relates that in 1625, he's sent by his father to study in the Metz Yeshiva. And after four years, he returns to Prague. And as was the custom in these countries, every Yeshiva student, whether poor or rich, traveled exclusively on foot with his clothing bundled on his shoulder and his staff in hand. And this way, wandering from city to city, from yeshiva to yeshiva, these young scholars were instrumental in passing on knowledge and chedushim and books and manuscripts. And they were a vital link between the centers of Torah study, but also the areas of Western Ashkenaz. It was seen as an entity in its own right. Fascinating. 
You mentioned earlier the city of Metz. Right, yes, mentioned a couple of times because Metz had its own importance and status. Now, Metz also went backwards and forwards between France and Germany, but already by 1552, German princes had traded it to the French in exchange for protection. Although German names and language lingered on in some ways to this very day, So France took control of Metz in 1552, and a number of families from Germany and Poland were allowed to settle there in order to provide credit to the city residents and the military garrison. And in 1567, the Metz Kehillah is officially re-established, and it becomes the westernmost outpost of Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazic Jewry. Move anywhere further west from Metz, you are in no man's land. You know, there's no one in the rest of France, no one in England, etc., etc. During the 17th century, the Jewish population in Metz increased dramatically, and by 1789, it is the largest community, Jewish community, in France. And... Because of the city's strategic position at the time of the Thirty Years' War, a large percentage of the Jewish community were involved in supplying the army, horses, grain, loans to soldiers. And this is not confined to Metz, because in Alsace too, they had this role. And in fact, until the revolution, the vast majority of Jews in northeastern France was limited by decree to money lending, trading in old clothes and cattle. Now, there is a little bit of an improvement in the second half of the 18th century, the second half of the 1700s, in the legal standing, by 1760, they didn't have to wear pejorative clothing, but until then they had to. So after 1760, they don't have to wear the yellow hat, nor do they have to attend church to listen to monthly sermons. But as late as that, it changes. And in 1769, several Frenchmen were found guilty by the Parliament of Metz of theft from a Jewish home and were put to death. And this ruling relied exclusively on the testimony of Jews, so it's a landmark case. How did Metz compare to Alsace religiously? I mean, clearly... The way you're describing Metz, it wasn't difficult to put together a minion. There was no isolation. There must have been a very different religious life. So, yeah, another reason that Metz is different, unlike, first of all, the religious limitations in the south, and unlike the scattering of the Jews in Alsace, here the king guaranteed the public practice of Judaism, which was headed by a rabbi who could carry out decisions in accordance with halacha and with recourse to the full range of of powers to police the Kehillah. And throughout the 17th century, this right to self-government included both civil and ritual matters. So both, you know, Chosh and Mishpot and Hilchas Brochus and Shabbos, etc., And in 1693, when a Jewish resident of the community went to the French authorities with a request to conduct his legal battle in the royal courts, the Metz Kehillah responded aggressively. They sent a delegation to Paris, and this was done with the support of the Metz parliament, and they prevailed. So they were still the ones who had the final say. 
and they attracted distinguished Talmidei Chachomim to serve as the Av Bezdin, as the head of the yeshiva. Uh, the list in those in that century includes Rav Gershon Ashkenazi, the Avodah Zagrushuni, Rav Yaakov Reisha, the Shvas Yaakov, the Pnei Yeshua, Rav Yonasen the Shagas Aryeh, and most of them are in fact buried in Metz. The Shagas Aryeh is the last of these. He was appointed the Av Bezdin in 1765 at the age of 70 and was active in the Bezdin till shortly before his death, 20 years later. And he'd been the Rov in Volozhin prior to that. Although, having mentioned the Shvus Yaakov, he was the Rov in Metz 1719 to 1733. I just recently came across a PhD thesis on his life, so I wanted to share a couple of points. How many hundreds of pages did you sift through? Baruch Hashem, <laughs> this one was brief. I don't think it's more than 100 pages. <laughs> it's he was it's a one, one breakfast. Yes, exactly. So first to get an idea of who the Shvus Yaakov was. Rav Yecheskel Katzen Ellenbogen of Hamburg requested the assistance of Rabbi Reicher in order to impress upon a wealthy and influential man that Jewish law was strongly opposed to bribery and intimidation. Now, you might think that doesn't need saying, but the problem was there was a local Rav who was afraid to give his opinion in a case involving this rich man because he felt that all the local leaders were prejudiced in favor of this wealthy person. And the Shrusyakov agreed to, you know, make his views known to the wealthy individual in writing as requested. No problem. He had no issues with that. And he had an outstanding reputation as a poisic. He was exposed to many extreme shyness as a result of war, fire, poverty. And he, he, in fact, he also has a truva regarding Siamese twins, which is almost at the very beginning of his truvas in, in Chelek Aleph. And his approach to halacha is to try and find leniency. And we find this in terms of kashrus, in avelus, but he would not infringe on halacha. And you know, before he was in Metz, he was the Rav of Worms, and he was asked about a, a minhag regarding fasting, which he was very dismissive of. And the Kehillah in Worms took umbrage, and they pointed out that Worms have minhagim stretching back centuries. So he's not, you know, intimidated, and he writes to them, acknowledging that most minhage vormaiza miusodim al pitera, but then he adds... You can't change minag when it comes to halacha. And if you turn over minag, it becomes gehenim, because the letters minhag, mem, nun, hey, gimel, become the word gehenim if you reverse them. Wow. That's what he wrote. So he comes to Metz, which at the time had 480 families, and indicative both of his broad shoulders and of the time they lived in, in 1723, he's asked by the Kehillah whether it was permitted to burn Seamus because there was no safe place to put them, to store them, because the non-Jews desecrated them when they were buried in the local basic forest. And also there was very little space allotted to Jewish cemeteries at the time in order to keep the Jewish population at a minimum. So since there was hardly any room for the burial of people, uh, you couldn't find place for the burial of Seamus. And he allows the burning of it and defends himself against criticism. 
in history is he looked at as a mekel, as someone who was lenient, or as a result of the times that he lived in? That he had Between to... him and the Chavis Yor era, the, the Chidor writes that these are two of the Amude Hiro, two of the main poiskim of the early 1700s. And he then writes that enemies of his, on whose account he had left the community of worms, became more fierce. And at one time in 1728, their accusations almost caused him to be sent to prison. And only Hashkocha saved him from this fate. And he writes, Besheker alilo, litvois oisi bebeis hakele. Take me to jail and borach Hashem ashepodo es Yaakov. And then for two years, between 1718 and 1720, the Shvus was almost blind, but recovered. But in spite of all these difficulties, he could speak proudly of a first-class yeshiva in Metz with many famous students who became Rabbonim in various kehillas in their own right. So you're describing Metz as an Irva Aim Yisrael? In the 1600s, definitely, and early 1700s. However, as time went on, the right of the Rov to judge civil matters, Choshen Mishpot, was challenged repeatedly. And initially, the Kehillah had to get confirmation from Parliament. But by 1734, the Metz Parliament ruled that members of the Kehillah could not be forced to bring their civil disputes to the rabbinic court, which limited its authority to cases where both parties agreed voluntarily to submit to arbitration, as as is the case today, basically. And as a result, laymen were appointed to oversee financial cases, not Dayonim. Nevertheless, the Shvus Yaakov allowed this practice of establishing lay courts alongside rabbinic uh, tribunals, and in a drosha in 1745 from Rebunus and Eibeshitz, who was the Rav at that time, he confirms that by that date, the two sort of realms had become separate. And that was the way they had to live. And did this lead to a drop in religious observance? So in certain areas, there was a decline because of the non-Jewish surroundings to which the rabbinate uh, attempted to respond by making taconus. In these taconus, you have details concerning hairstyle and fashion. Pleated coats were forbidden to all women and girls. (laughs) And interestingly, the resistance that these taconus encountered points to a strong fascination with the surrounding non-Jewish culture, which is therefore not by any means a, you know, a 21st century phenomenon. And in the words of the famous woman diarist, Gluckel of Hamelin, who resided for many years in Metz, she says, when I first came here in 1701, Metz was a very beautiful, pious community, and the Paranasim were all worthy men. In those days, not one man who sat in the council room wore a peruque, which is a wig, uh, which changed during her times. So the shetels were worn by the men. <laughs> uh, we also find certain paternity suits and extramarital pregnancies recorded in the protocols of the Besdin. Commercially, there were taconis to distinguish between boys and younger married men and older married men. Boys under 15 were not allowed to engage in commerce in the Kehillah. And if a boy violated this restriction before reaching 13, he wouldn't be allowed to read from the Torah at his bar mitzvah. So, 
<laughs> well, where were they at the age of 14? Were they still in school? There was no, were there any yeshivas at that time for that age? There was a certain level of education, but not what we would call anywhere near sort of full-time or even half-time. And one of the other issues that they had to deal with, not just in Metz, but in the whole region, was the fact that like French government appointments, from the mid-17th century, rabbinic posts became available for purchase, as was the case in Poland from the 16th century. France had become immersed in decades of warfare, and the royal administration needed new sources of revenue. So various officers, including uh, clerical positions, were made available for sale. And these positions were life appointments, and so they remained in rich families for generations. Now, it didn't include, you know, the Av Bezdin, but minor positions were available to wealthy families, and this did engender a certain level of nepotism and sometimes corruption. I've never heard of rabbinic positions being offered for purchase. Was that a, the first time this happened? One of the major issues during the time of the Vilna Gorn, which in a way didn't involve the Vilnagon, at least not initially, uh, was the purchasing of a position in Lithuania. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, it happened. Wow. Yes. You mentioned earlier that there was some Ashkenazim in the south of France. Why would an Ashkenazi travel down south to the Svadim? What was the gain? It was a whole different culture. It's a good point. Basically, the scope of commerce. Religiously, obviously, there's more available up north, but it was very limited trade possibilities that existed there for them. So if they needed to make a living, it would be a reason to head south. Mm. Okay, so let's now move to the main city of this whole region and, as a result, introduce an individual who will become very relevant to the Jews during the revolution. The city is Strasbourg, the capital of Alsace, which stubbornly refused to allow any single Jew residence for 400 years. No Jews were illegally allowed to reside there. But there's an individual called Serf Bear, who is a large-scale contractor for the king's armies and a banker, and he lived in Bischheim. His house is still available to be visited, and there's a museum there. It was at the time a village in the vicinity of Strasbourg. Nowadays, it's part of Greater Strasbourg. But because there were robberies there and because the army needed his services to hand, the king's representatives in Alsace forced Strasbourg to grant him temporary residence in the city. And he was determined to remain there permanently. So he secretly buys a house. And then, in March 1775, the king expressed his thanks to Serf Bear for his services to the crown by presenting him with, you know, sort of letters granting him the rights enjoyed by other citizens, and obviously refused to Jews, which include the right to purchase uh, real estate and to, you know, live in any city. And these letters are recognised and registered by the, the parliaments of Paris and Nancy, but when he attempted to legalise his own home purchase for his family and that of his employees, it's, it's uh, 35 men, 35 women in Strasbourg, the city refuses to recognise the king's letters. Now, he is so certain of the strength of his position that he warns the king that he will stop furnishing the army with provisions if Strasbourg does not allow him residence. And this fight goes on for 15 years 
In fact, the only reason it was stopped was because Alsace was eventually granted full citizenship rights in 1791. And that's when the, the, the conflict between Strasbourg and Serfbert ended. So this was a very difficult city for the Jews. And there were rising tensions related to the role of the Jews in the economy in general in the area. It was the, virtually the only thing they could do. But in 1777, thousands of forged receipts were circulated in Alsace in order to defraud Jewish lenders of their payments. It's as if they've been paid up already. And although the Council of Alsace confirmed that the debts owed to the Jewish lenders were still outstanding and the forgers were brought to justice and convicted, there was still great popular support for Francois Hell, who had masterminded this scheme and for the pamphlet that he published, which justified his allegations um, that they were greedy and that this money lending is the reason that there was a religious enmity between Jews and Christians. And even after January 1784, the Jews entering the city by way of the bridge over the Rhine had to pay a toll double the amount taken from non-Jews. And once again, the king in 1786 forbade this practice and Strasbourg told him to jump in the lake. And there was a proposed edict that would strengthen the anti-Jewish regulations. Jews would only be able to be one-tenth of the total population of any city and village. And if they exceeded it, then marriages would be prohibited until, you know, until the numbers decreased. And the, the, you know, the Jewish Sabbath was to be observed on Sunday. And any trade on credit between Jews and Christians was to be forbidden. So, thank God, these things never came into being. But, in fact, as we will see next week, even non-Jews who, in the 1780s, demanded improvement in the legal status of the Jews, didn't disagree with the fact that Jews were devoid of virtue. There is a, a famous prize-winning essay which Abbe Henri Grégoire submitted to the Metz Royal Academy of Science in 1785, and he said the Jews are degenerate and depraved. He said that despite their disabilities, they could be regenerated morally and physically, and that's why we should give them rights. And until the very last days preceding the outbreak of the revolution, the Jews were an oppressed, barely tolerated group, and all liberal voices favoring the Jews didn't achieve any practical improvement. It took a far more important event, the revolution of 1789. Although, even before they were fully admitted to citizenship, the Jews identified enthusiastically with the fledgling republic. In Paris, uh, there were about 100 Jews who joined the National Guard in 1789. But the bestowal of citizenship on the Jews met with very real resistance, as we will see next week. And shortly after the storming of the Bastille, anti-Jewish riots broke out in 20 communities in Alsace. So we're leaving this week in 1789 on the verge of a revolution. Yes, a revolution which would change the European landscape. What made it happen? And where did the Jews fit in next week? Thank you very much, Rabbi Hesh. Fascinating re-entry into a new season. Please carry on sending your feedback, your questions, your suggestions to podcast.jd.org.uk. We received many emails throughout the sum periods. People very much enjoyed 
their long journeys, which were very boring until they discovered history for the curious. <laughs> and it's always appreciated to hear. People actually have been to certain places in France as a result of the podcast, particularly Provence, and they listened again. So we love receiving your emails. Please keep sending them. Thank you, Robert Hirsch, and good night, everyone. <laughs>